Hello, player one. Welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. Hello, and I'm JP. In today's episode, we will discuss a topic in video games that deserves more attention and awareness. Here at Gaming History Club, we believe that video games can benefit people in many deeply personal ways, but also socially as part of a community. Video games ought to be accessible to as many people as possible. And so today, we dedicate this episode to accessibility in video games and celebrate International Day of Persons with Disabilities. So why is accessibility important? I think people with just an ounce of empathy will completely understand already why accessibility is important. But just to put it on the map, do you want to give us some statistics, Gabby? Yes. So the World Health Organization estimates that worldwide, one in six people have a form of disability. According to research conducted by the Accessibility Foundation in Utrecht, the Netherlands, Approximately 92% of people with some kind of impairment also play video games. PopCap Games, a developer under EA who create casual games such as Bejeweled, found that disabled gamers make up to 20% of the casual audience. It is estimated that there are over 429 million players with disabilities. That is a lot more than the entire population of the USA. Yeah, that is a good comparison to make. Uh, there are 331 million Americans in the USA, estimated. So, yeah, to, to put that in perspective, there are many people suffering from a disability. Yes, and in the UK and US, nearly a third of gamers identify as being disabled. That's actually nearly double, because if you see it in the general population, there are 16% identify as disabled. Yeah, so we can draw a pretty concluding picture out of that, can't we? Yes, that there are many disabled player ones and they are more likely to play video games than people that are not or do not consider themselves to be disabled. They're also more likely to view gaming as their primary hobby and spend more time gaming procession than non-disabled gamers. Don't get me wrong, some of the reasons for playing video games are absolutely shared by disabled persons and persons that do not have disability. At the end of the day, games are entertainment. It's part of a culture, socializing, things that mean the difference between existing and living. We love to get captured in different worlds and experience things that we cannot in real life. Yeah, there's a lot more that we have in common than things that we don't have in common. Exactly. But for people with disabilities, this goes even further. Games can mean therapy, pain relief, escapism and independence. Many people in pain, disabled, sick or stuck at home find freedom in games that the real world can't give them. Games help distract from suffering, great for mental health, improved dexterity, and provide a sense of achievement. Yeah. I think we've all experienced this in our own ways as well. We've all been sick before. Um, we've, we've all had been depressed before. And we pick up video games to help us get through the day and just take our mind out of things. But 
disabled people benefit so much more from video games in that sense. We talk a lot about disabilities, but it doesn't always have to be a disability either. Accessibility helps a lot of people. So when we talk about colorblinded people, for example, they may not even consider themselves to have a disability, depending on the severity of the colorblindness. And also people who've just had an accident, maybe a broken arm, for example, and it's going to take a certain amount of time to heal. They're going to be fine afterwards. But in that period, accessibility helps them to play video games still. Yeah, so the benefit from accessibility in video games absolutely will include everyone. Yeah, it is not just something for the benefit of people with a disability. It, it is absolutely for all of us. Yeah, and speaking of benefits, Able Gamers, a nonprofit organization founded in the US in 2004, lists five key benefits to playing video games for disabled persons. The first one is increased opportunity to experience the world. While most places in games are fictional, VR has made exploring the real world possible. The second one is improved mental well-being by providing an opportunity to distress, allowing players to become whoever they want to be, work towards a specific goal, feel a sense of achievement, and improve self-esteem. These are vital, as estimated, 25 to 41% of disabled persons suffer from depression. And I think this is where we can really start relating as well, right? I mean, yeah, these are the same benefits for all of us, aren't they? Absolutely. And I personally can relate to this 100% because that's the reason why we're playing video games, to distress, to just disconnect and connecting to a new world instead. Let's just say the way it is, games make us feel good. Yes, it does. And another one is to help with learning and cognitive skills. As many games involve critical thinking, learning, reading, writing, and decision-making. Another benefit is to improve fine motor skills. And the last one is reduced social isolation. Around 40% of disabled persons report feelings of loneliness and social isolation. The social benefits of games are valuable to all players, but they are even more impactful for persons who may struggle to interact with others. So my research, I found some very good things uh, coming from Scope, a UK charity. According to Scope, 66% of gamers with an impairment or condition experience barriers or issues related to gaming. Now let's find out what some of these barriers are. The biggest barrier to gaming is the affordability of suitable assistive or adapted technology. That's 30% of people who were surveyed. Now, just to remain on this first point, Two in five disabled gamers have purchased games they haven't been able to play due to poor accessibility. This means that the information available about accessibility before they purchase the game often isn't clear or specific enough, or it's not reaching the people who need to know about it. Of the gamers who were not able to play a game due to poor accessibility, a third of them were not able to return it, and this means that approximately one in seven disabled gamers have lost money due to accessibility in games. Now, with disabled people facing an average of £583 per month in extra costs, which I think is um, a lot, it's more in dollars, so maybe 625 or whatever, it's, it's a lot. Um, this represents a huge injustice and barrier for disabled gamers. So they really need to dig into their pockets to be able to afford what for many of them is their prime main hobby, 
and the thing that really supports them in their life, it is a big cost for them. And they're losing money sometimes because accessibility is not clear enough. The second biggest barrier, according to Scope, is similarly to the first one, where the first one is the affordability. The second one is actually the availability of suitable assistive or adaptive technologies to support disabled gamers play the game. And that's a 22%. The third biggest barrier was inaccessible consoles at 18%. And the fourth is inaccessible games at 17%. A highlight from the scope study as well was that 40% of disabled gamers have experienced negative attitudes from other gamers relating to a disability, impairment or condition within the last 12 months. Let me read out some of the testimony that was given anonymously to Scope. So, quote-unquote, it affected my mental health by knocking my confidence and making me feel bad about one of the few things I can do and enjoy. Someone else said, it made me feel bad for being different. And another one is, I now play alone, which is very much unacceptable. I now play alone should not be a thing because as we've discussed previously... One of the main things about gaming as a hobby is that social interaction it gives to people who may not be able to interact otherwise. Yeah, we need to really fight the bullying inside video games because at the end of the day, it is one of the ways we can socialize with others and bullying is not okay either way anyway and definitely not in video games. Yeah, it is clear that the range of barriers is broad and there is a role to play for most organizations in the gaming industry, but also us as gamers within the gaming community to improve access for all. Some of the recommendations that were given to Scope from the people who were surveyed, 31% of gamers with an impairment or condition would like to see a commitment from gaming platforms to tackle negative attitudes and bullying online. Secondly, the next top priorities for gamers are more accurate and more frequent representation of disabled people or characters within games. I find this very interesting because the two biggest things for people was that they are in some form social or social recognition. These aren't physical barriers and they're not game design barriers, they're actually social barriers. It reminds me a little bit of uh, representation of women in games yeah. as well, where it wasn't until women became more part of the gaming industry and community that we actually start seeing less of that negative stereotyping, if you will. Yeah, that's true. 20% wanted more affordable assistive technologies. 17% want better information on accessibility of games and 16% want more assistive technology options. Yeah, and I feel like accessibility in video games has been lagging behind. It's seriously lagging behind. Like one frame per second, dial-up modem internet connection lag kind yeah. of behind. Windows 95 trying to run the Unreal 5 engine, basically. Exactly. Like seriously, yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of quick progress made in video games in other areas, but accessibility is one that we should feel quite ashamed about how slow we are to pick up this massive issue that we've caused ourselves. That's true. I mean, the first notable piece of mainstream accessible technology was Nintendo's hands-free controller for the NES. Um, that was released at a really high cost of $120. So if you adjust for inflation, that's around $300 today. 
Um, it wasn't even available in stores. You can only get it through a customer telephone number. And additionally, exposure and knowledge of it may have been limited to consumers because internet didn't exist back then. Yeah, you, you will have had to been a little bit lucky to find out that Nintendo is actually offering this to you, I, I believe, in some sense. That's true. And I guess on the other hand, if you have to pay $120 extra at that time, I believe it's um, in the 1980s. Yeah, 88, 89, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Mm. right. So late 1980s. So people might think, why do I have to spend more just to be able to play the same games? Absolutely. Yeah. So many disabled players found ways to make games playable on their own, but this definitely caused a trend where game accessibility was made the consumer's responsibility. They're the one who have to spend more. They're the one who have to find out what accessibility options are available to them. Although advocacy groups such as Game Accessibility Special Interest Group in the International Game Developers Association, or IGDA, and several others attempt to create a set of guidelines for game accessibility these efforts have largely been ignored by major developers. So you can read all this in gamesaccessibilityguidelines.com. Um, a straightforward reference for inclusive game design has been actually supporting the industry since 2012. It's a collaborative effort between a group of studios, specialists, and academics to produce a straightforward developer-friendly reference for ways to avoid unnecessarily excluding players and ensure that games are just as fun for as wide range of people as possible. They basically break down their guidelines into six groups, motor, cognitive, vision, hearing, speech, and general. And each of those groups consisting of basic, intermediate, and advanced guidelines. There are quite a lot of them, and we obviously don't want to read it all on this episode because that's going to take a while. We will leave a link in the description for your information, but we have found that when reading through these guidelines, that the majority of accessibility options are easily implementable. It's quite straightforward, and it will benefit a large amount of players. Some of the examples that I would like to highlight is Offering a choice of difficulty levels, allow them to be changed during gameplay, allow controls to be remapped, offer skip options for QTEs, and allowing hold button alternatives instead of button mashing. I think options is the key takeaway here. Although not listed in the guidelines, we have seen testimony online where players can get motion sickness, for example, from excessive camera movement. So an option to turn it off can make the difference for thousands of players being able to enjoy the game or not. Absolutely, yeah. If you don't suffer from getting motion sickness, yeah, just don't use that option to turn it off. It makes no difference to anyone at all. It can only benefit people. Exactly, yes. Talking about guidelines, so I found this amazing person online called Laura Dale, She's a full-time video game critic who specializes in accessibility and representation critique. She has a YouTube channel called Laura K. Bus and a website access-ability.uk. 
Laura made a post in early 2023 bringing awareness for a need to standardize accessibility in video games. And she's highlighted the following basics to improve accessibility. And I do want to read these out because this is from a real person who's been reviewing accessibility options in games and game developers for years now. So some of the things she highlights are subtitle and text standards, but I don't mean just having subtitles in the first place. No, we're talking about a minimum font size as soon as you load up the game and customization options, including the sizing of the subtitles, support for alternative dyslexia-friendly fonts, speaker names, text color per character, directional indicators for a character's location in the game, and closed captions. Um, what else? So she's got accessibility previews and menus. So if we take the subtitles, for example, so if you want to change the size of the subtitles, it'll give you a preview of how big they would be in game. Mm. So this would stop you from having to exit, you know, back into the main game, taking a look. Maybe it won't show up immediately anyway. You have to go somewhere where someone says something so you see the size of the subtitles. And it's basically just a lot quicker if you have previews of the accessibility options in the menu. She's got multi-platform accessibility controller support. So in recent years, we've seen um, the big console manufacturers making some accessibility option hardware available. So Xbox, for example, has their Xbox adaptive controller. Um, PlayStation is coming out with Project Leonard. But if you have one that really, really works for you well, you might want to be able to use it on not just the Xbox, maybe for your Switch as well, for your PC. And I think that's where she's coming from here, multi-platform accessibility. Yep. A high contrast mode, straightforward. Uh, a co-pilot mode. So this is a feature Xbox actually has right now. This is where two controllers can be registered as a single user. And this allows for a lot of flexibility to really optimize how you can play the game ergonomically speaking. So you could have one putt yourself and you have someone else helping you by controlling the same character with a second controller. But you can also, with the Xbox adaptive controller, plug another controller into the adaptive controller and it just allows you flexible options to really suit your specific needs that you have. Standardized accessibility store tags. So this is where you allow gamers to identify very quickly what games have certain accessibility options available to them or not. And this would avoid one of the big pitfalls of unfortunately having to buy a game that you don't know will work for you. It turns out it doesn't work for you and then a third of those people also can't return the game, losing money. Accessibility setting announcements is another one. So this is where announcing what accessibility options will be available for a game as early as possible and not having it lost in that hype making PR campaigns. So this is where before a game comes out, you know, like you get the, oh, our game will feature this bullet time and you'll be able to make your own starships. And sometimes accessibility options get caught up in that kind of fanfare. Mm -hmm. But accessibility options are not gameplay elements. This decides if someone can or cannot play the game. So it should be very much at the forefront and as early as possible announced to people. This will stop people from like looking forward to a game that they will not be able to play in the end. Yeah, I would largely invite people to do before you buy reviews 
including accessibility in games. Yeah, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Some other things that she's mentioned is accessible packaging, which I like that one because that is kind of like um, thinking outside of the box as well. But yeah, you, you order a game from Amazon and you struggle opening the, the packaging. That's already a massive hurdle. Love this one. Uh, colorblind support. Controller remapping. So just changing what the buttons do. Mm -hmm. And accessibility on first boot and presets also, where if you have a very certain condition or impairment, that you have a preset. So because some of the better accessibility games now I think The Last of Us Part 2, that had 60 plus accessibility options, which is great. But how much better would it be if you could say, I have exactly this going on mm -hmm. and the game will just do all that for you as well? Because we want options. We want a lot of accessibility options. But once it gets to a certain level, that also means you will take a long time to set it up exactly the way you need. And maybe that isn't easy for you either, right? So having the presets there would be great too. So now let's talk a little bit more about how accessibility has been improved. Now that we've took a look at some of the guidelines and some of the easy ways we can ensure that video games are accessible to people. So improving accessibility in video games has only really got momentum relatively recently in gaming history. Despite the number of charities and advocacy groups that have been around pushing and lobbying for better accessibility in games, one of the earliest being the Game Accessibility Special Interest Group that you talked about. Mm -hmm. It is thanks to their decades of dedication that games are becoming more accessible. It is thanks to them. But we have only very recently been able to make a little bit of momentum here. We're actually getting the ball rolling now, even though these guys have been around for like decades now. So shout outs to them. Yeah. So there has been small accessibility gains and achievements. So, for example, World of Warcraft introduced a colorblind mode in 2015, but it was actually in 2016 where we started to make quite a big leap, and this was thanks to a gentleman called Josh Straub. He is a gamer that has a physical disability that limits the use of his hands and slows his reflexes. I found an article where Polygon interviews Josh, and he mentioned that he wasn't able to play Uncharted 2, a game he was really fond of, because the game has certain areas where you need to mash the button to open doors, if you remember, right? Mm -hmm. And this has led him to found Daggers, uh, which is now known as Ability Points, though. And he consulted with Naughty Dog in the making of Uncharted 4. And Uncharted 4 in 2016 was a very big leap for accessibility options in video games. The game has an option to hold down rather than tap for repeated button presses, such as punching and quick time events, QTEs. It has an option to change aiming from holding down a button to tapping to turn the aim on or off. You can also enable aim assist, which is the target lock on, and camera assist and vehicle camera assist too. So, which when you use them all together, allow the game to be played one-handed with a single stick. That's impressive. Good on you, Josh. Yeah, go on, Josh. In 2018, we also see a milestone for accessibility. Microsoft reveals the Xbox Adaptive Controller, as you mentioned before. It's a controller which was built in collaboration with advocacy groups such as Special Effect and Able Gamers Foundation. Ubisoft started a task force to increase awareness of accessibility across all its studios. 
thanks to its effort, it has since released games with noteworthy accessibility features such as Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Also in 2018, a significant change was seen in Celeste's Acclaim Assist mode, which allows the player to adjust speed, become invincible, and skip levels entirely, among other options. This was a significant decision by independent developer Matt Makes Games, as Celeste's notorious difficulty is relevant to the story, showing the AAA developers how it's done. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, I've got a good example of where the flip side happens. I'm very proud of Celeste, indie developer as well. Um, but yeah, I'll let you continue. Yes, we will delve into that a little bit more later on. With the COVID pandemic, if you still remember what that is. No, no, <laughs> no. I've, that is so far gone now. That's in the back of my mind. I never want to think about it again. Yes, but actually it caused a video game boom though. And it also allow a fresh focus on the benefit of games beyond entertainment because you're using it for education, rehabilitation, and health purposes. Gaming accessibility became an emerging field of research, especially as disabled persons could benefit from video games the most. can't remember which philosopher it was, but there was one who said that out of chaos comes opportunity. And I feel like COVID does fill that quote quite well, actually, when you think about working from home, a refreshed focus on that work-to-life balance. Yeah. And then also, what other ways can video games help us if we're stuck at home? And I think that's what helped the gaming accessibility becoming an emerging field of research for people to dedicate resource into and research. It gave people a lot of reflective time, I feel like. That's right. Starting in 2020 as well, the Game Awards introduced a new category called Innovation in Accessibility. The Last of Us Part II won the first award in 2020 and it featured more than 60 accessibility options, covering things like controls, visual aids, audio clues, navigation and traversal, and combat. Some are fairly standard features like being able to make the UI larger or tweak the subtitles for colorblind users. Other elements are much more involved. There's a text-to-speech option that reads out everything in the game, from the menus to the notes that Ellie takes picking up on her journey and audio cues to indicate when there are items nearby or a ledge you can climb up. By the way, the other games for the following years, so in 2021, Forza Horizon 5 won the award. In 2022, it was God of War Ragnarok. And 2023... The nominees are Diablo 4, Forza Motorsport, Hi-Fi Rush, Mortal Kombat, and Street Fighter 6. Oh, I can't wait to know who's going to be the winner. When is it going to be announced? Jamie? Very exciting. I believe it's definitely early to mid-December. Great. We will definitely touch on that on our social media once it's announced. Oh, we will be touching upon it. That is going to be the main award that I'm actually looking forward to for this year because I'm very excited. I have a feeling maybe Mortal Kombat takes it. Mm, are you biased though? Yeah, maybe. So what can we in the gaming community do to support accessibility for everyone? One of the first ones, let's say, is keep trash talking classy and not personal. I am not someone who engages a lot in trash talking, to be fair. I'm just not a competitive person in general all that much. Although if you start trash talking to me, I tend to give it back. <laughs> it's like a 
defense mechanism, really. Even though I don't enjoy it, I'm really bad at it too, right? But, you know, it's it's like uh, in sports, isn't it? Or um, breakdancing, for example. That's that's something that I do know, breakdancing or b-boying, right? So when you're in a battle, you know, one, one versus one, crew versus crew, doesn't matter. Yeah, you can do all kinds of naughty things to each other and all kinds of gestures and... You know, you, you can do that, but everyone agrees that, like, once the battle's over, you shake hands and you are just friendly, normal people. And that's actually heavily enforced in that community. We are very friendly people. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here, where it's it's okay to be a little bit trash-talking, especially when you play, like, Call of Duty or fighting games. You, you could call it part of the culture, but you just need to understand boundaries as well, obviously. And keep that's, it classy. Yeah, keep it classy. That's That's not... You know, just in terms of disabilities, anything personal, your your race, your gender, keep that out of your trash talk. Another thing I think we as a community can do is look at accessibility as one of the things when you are judging how good a game is, when you're talking to your friends, for example. But more importantly, if you have a a voice in the community, if you have a few followers, for example, maybe next time you rate the newest AAA game, just include the fact that, well, this is how many accessibility options it does or doesn't have as part of your general rating of a video game. And the last one is without getting too personal. I don't want to call anyone out here, but realize that it isn't all about you. And this is when we were talking about Celeste before. So this is an occasion where it's gone wrong before, right? So when From Software, who are famous for making Dark Souls, Bloodborne, Demon Souls, when they were developing Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, a notoriously difficult video game, there were discussions about making an easy difficulty mode for this game, right? And this was met with extremely negative feedback from the gaming community because they feel like that's just part of the game. They are really difficult. This is how they created their style of game it is part of the gameplay just as Celestis, difficult is part of the game and they didn't end up having an easy difficulty option in the game and this makes the game unaccessible to many many players but what difference really would it have made to players who want to experience the game it was quote-unquote meant to be played i don't agree with that it wasn't meant to be played any which way but if you enjoy a hard difficulty Turn on hard difficulty. No one is stopping you. You are only stopping other players from playing the game whatsoever. And this is the important message here. While game developers are ready and willing to make games inclusive for all, some in the gaming community are not. Whether they know this, it might not be their intention, but I think this is why I want to hit the point home, basically. Yeah, and it all comes back to what? You mentioned before, it's all about options. Giving the options, it's always a good thing to include as many people as possible. So I would like to give a shout out to the website caniplaythat.com. This website basically provides all forms of accessibility information on video games and the industry. So talking about specific games, you mentioned Sekiro before and... I would like to highlight a more recent games, which is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. It's a game that we all love, that we all praise. Very highly rated. Maybe game of the year for loads and loads of people. Yes, exactly. And according to caniplaythat.com, there is a really interesting conclusion that I really want to read out in this episode. So they say, 
Overall, it is a marked improvement over Breath of the Wild when it comes to the core game. But Tears of the Kingdom doesn't improve when it comes to improving the accessibility of the gameplay. There is room for improvement across the board, as things like weapon durability and limited resources are still a problem. Those frustrations have been eased a bit compared to the prior entry, thanks to an improved UI. On the visual side of things, graphical improvements to the world and UI make it easier to make progress, but there is a need for a colorblind features. The inclusion of voice acting alongside full subtitles is fantastic for deaf and hard of hearing players. More care is needed to include visual indicators of sound effects. Rigidity in its design is the key enemy of Tears of the Kingdom. The foundation is there for a game that can be action and puzzle heavy and still provide an accessible experience. The final product is inaccessible outside of the game's earliest guided moments and a small portion of its open area. Unfortunately, given that Breath of the Wild never got improvements to remedy these issues, it is unlikely that its sequel will. Thus, it's impossible to recommend one of Nintendo's best games ever due to its lack of accessibility features. Some games can get by without having accessibility options because the game design is accessible, but Tears of the Kingdom isn't one of them. Yeah, I think this was a really good one to kind of uh, show player one because this is a big AAA game made from Nintendo, priding themselves and their uh, you know, family friendliness and making games open to everyone, but how open to everyone is it? Colorblind people may already struggle with the game. Little things such as visual indicators for sound effects. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a really interesting review to highlight. I mean, this was only the conclusion, so the actual review is a lot more in depth, mm -hmm. but obviously we just want to give the conclusion to kind of show like, yeah, big AAA games made from Nintendo also suffer from a lack of accessibility options. And we still have a very long way to go, even for like, some of the more basic things, you know, we can help colorblind people, um, you know, people hard of hearing with something as simple as visual indicators for sound effects. Mm -hmm. We can implement things to enable so many people to play games. Yes, and this is exactly the point that you were making before. For player ones out there, when you're looking into great games, game of the year, or, you know, you want to recommend games, this is something that we need to start looking into and put into consideration how great they are in accessibility, in inclusivity, and in making sure that as many people can play the games. Yeah, if I may be so blunt, I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes when there's a game that comes out with very good accessibility options, we say well done, yeah. rightfully, to mm -hmm. those developers. But for the number of times it isn't done at all, from a big studio for a AAA game with a massive budget, we don't rate them down for it. And maybe we should look a little bit more closer at that, where, you know, the best profiting game of the year maybe doesn't even have a single accessibility option. Does it truly deserve that spot still? Well, I'm not here to judge, but I will judge for myself moving forward. That's true, yeah. What else can we do? So support charities and advocacy groups such as Special Effects, they're a UK-based group that supports disabled players to control video games. They use a wide range of technologies, from modified controllers to eye-tracking sensors, 
And they have also been very generous and helped me with some of my research. So please take a look at Special Effect UK. We will leave a link in the description. They do some very fantastic work. Yeah, and if you're interested in donating to Special Effect, we will also link that in the description to make sure you can have a look at that. Absolutely. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, Player One, and provided you with a new way to rate how good a video game truly is in future. We have become very invested in accessibility during this episode of Gaming History Club, and we want to thank Special Effect again, especially for supporting us during our research. And massive shout out for people who support accessibility in video games, such as Laura Dill with her channel, Laura K. Bus. Please, Player One, do check that out. We will also link that in the description. We need to talk about this more and more. Absolutely. Yes. There are many people who are doing a lot of good work and we all don't need to have a person that has been affected by this directly. We all have enough empathy points in our heads to understand why this is important. And it could be any one of us. Yes. And as usual, new episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday. So make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club, and let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Or you can just share your favorite video game stories with us. Come back in a couple of weeks when we invite a special guest to Gaming History Club and celebrate the end of 2023 by revisiting this year's highlights and ridiculousness in video games. See ya.